This series is about rhythms, and it's about rhythms for one reason. Uh, It's about rhythms because for a lot of people, maybe people in this room, our honest assessment of our lives is that we're tired, we're spread thin, we're busy, perhaps we're feeling a little bit of fatigue. And even if you're a Christian, you might be saying two things that seem like they don't go together. I love Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, but my soul is not rested. You might have heard that invitation from Jesus himself in one of the Gospels. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And perhaps you're just going through the rat race that is life, not being able to make sense of this tension that I I love Jesus, I go to church, I'm following God, but inside I'm just falling apart. I feel overwhelmed. I feel uh, too active. I feel tired and fatigued. You might be experiencing what one doctor uh, explained as activity overload, to quote him. Booked up weeks in advance, we are a busy people. In an attempt to squeeze more things in, we try to do two or three things at the same time. You might be experiencing what Bridget Schultz, in her book of the same name, referred to as overwhelmed. She puts overwhelmed uh, in this way. It's a constant state of worrying about all we have to do and never feeling that we have enough time to get it all done, overwhelmed, overloaded. Uh, Some neuroscientists from the University of Yale recently uh, uh, came to this diagnostic that overwhelm, that which Schultz referred to, is actually shrinking the capacity of our brains. When we are constantly in a state, a perpetual state of overwhelm, uh, it actually shapes our brain to fit that lifestyle. And then we come to church on Sunday where some young tattooed pastor says, and now you need to spend time with God. And we're like, oh, any of you like that? Don't say yes. How can I possibly fit it all in? How could I possibly integrate my work with, with everything else? And maybe that's, one of, maybe that's one of your truest desires, is, is that you want to integrate your life in Christ, your faith in Christ with your work. Maybe you just don't even know how. Maybe those two things seem like two completely different worlds. Maybe it's not your work. Maybe you want to integrate your spirituality, your faith, your life with God with your relationships. Maybe you just don't know how. Maybe... For some of you, it's different. Maybe you just can't. Maybe you would say, my life is so fast-paced. I live in the fast lane. I work all of these hours. I have all of these responsibilities. I just don't feel like I have time for the things that are important to me. Maybe for some of you, it's not the fast-paced life. It's that your life feels like it's out of your control. Maybe some of you would say, I want to be more spiritual. I want to be more connected to God. I want to be more connected uh, uh, to heaven, but my life is chaotic. I feel like I don't have control over anything. Perhaps you would say, I I, I have a lot of things that I want to be better at. I want to be a better dad. I want to be better at work. I want to be more healthy. I want to be uh, a better person. And spirituality just feels like another item on my to-do list of things that are overwhelming that I don't seem to be able to pull off. If any of this describes you or resonates with you, you want to experience life in Christ but often feel torn by life in general, I feel like this series might be for you. We're going to look at ancient and biblical wisdom for cultivating your inner life with God even while remaining 
in the chaos of a fast-paced and often overwhelming life. Now, a quick note here. I'm not here talking about making New Year's resolutions. I know it's in the middle of January. That's maybe the first uh, place that our mind goes. That's not what I'm talking about here. If you have New Year's resolutions, that's great. If they're working for you, that's great. For most people, they don't seem to work. Approximately 130 million Americans made New Year's resolutions in January of 2018. 130 million people. You know what that speaks to me? A lot of people want change in their lives, as we should. We want to change things. We want things to be better. But whatever it is that people are doing doesn't seem to be working. Uh, One survey shows that 80% of those people failed to stick to their New Year's resolutions for longer than six weeks. Now, this isn't said, now I'm not saying that, you know, sometime by October or November, people fall off the wagon of New Year's resolutions. This is halfway through February. 80%, over 100 million people in America don't even make it to the end of February with the goals and objectives that they set out for themselves. Why? Latest research suggests that it's mainly because our goals tend to be too big and motivated by guilt. I want you to think about those two things for a second. Too big and motivated by guilt. Guilt entails you probably don't really like doing the thing that you set out to do. Anytime we're motivated by guilt, it's not necessarily that we want to do what we're setting out to do, but that we feel like we should. It's an obligation. We're supposed to. And goals that are, set, that are too big set us up for failure, especially if our only motivation is that we feel guilty. I want to give you an example of what this might look like for you and I, that our goals can sometimes be uninspiring and unrealistic. Uh, here's a classic example, one of the most famous New Year's resolutions. I'm going to put it this way. Oh, it's December 31st. I guess I should eat more healthy. I know, for my New Year's resolution, I am only going to eat chia seeds for dinner every day of my life. Halfway through February, we fall off the wagon. Why would you think that we fell off the wagon by February? Well, just think about it a little bit. I guess I should eat healthy. I guess I'm supposed to. There's nothing in your heart that is really entranced by the thought of eating or changing something in your diet. You just feel externally like you're supposed to do it. That'll never get you that far. Further, maybe to compensate for our lack of vision, we create these huge goals that are almost impossible. I'm only going to eat chia seeds, and we fall off the wagon. Why do we fall off the wagon? Well, have you ever stuffed a handful of chia seeds in your mouth before? They're disgusting. Now, I want to transition just a little bit into something more overtly spiritual. Same kind of idea. Wake up December 31st, and you start to think, oh, gosh, I really should pray more. I know. It's my New Year's resolution. I'm going to wake up at 3 a.m. every day and pray for hours. Anybody ever try that? I did it once years ago because I saw somebody else do it. And I remember getting up at 3 or 4 in the morning, and it was like death. Death was in the air. And I sat on my couch, put a blanket around my shoulders, had a cup of coffee, had my Bible in my lap, and was like, I saw this person do it. I'm going to do it too. 
I'm going to be so close to God, and I closed my eyes, and I got super contemplative, and I must have gotten really contemplative because I opened my eyes at like noon that day, Uh, and it wasn't because I was getting close to God, it's because I fell asleep, right? Never did that again. How many of you have set spiritual goals for your life that if you were honest with yourself were uninspiring, you just did them because you felt like you were supposed to, and they were unrealistic, they were huge and impossible, and they set us up for failure. Uh, Now, when you throw all of that into a life that's already overwhelmed and overloaded, you can see why so many people, even Christians, well-meaning Christians, can feel weak at the deepest level and even far from their God. When God, as we're about to look in the life of Daniel, is all about the small things. Sometimes God doesn't need you to create this huge list of religious activities. Sometimes he just needs you to open your eyes in the right direction. I say this because there's some of you, maybe moms, full-time working moms, that barely have a second to do anything between uh, managing your business and wiping snot trails off the carpet and putting out that fire that's now creeping up the draperies in the living room, you barely have like 10 seconds to just turn your head towards God and say, help me, right? But don't you think that that would be enough? Don't you think that all of those little moments in your life, perhaps you're working a 90-hour-a-week job and you, don't have, you, don't, you feel like you don't have a second to even open up your Bible, but in that moment, maybe between your lunch break and when you clock back in, you turn your attention back to God and you say, God, be with me right now. Don't you think that God would be in the, in, in, in the midst of those small things? God is all about the small things. Sometimes what's missing from our life is not a whole litany of religious activity based on guilt, but just a willingness to turn what we do have towards God. I love the story of the boy who, in the face of uh, 5,000 people who are starving, said, I have two, you know, two fish and five loaves, or whatever it was. And Jesus says, I can use that. And he multiplies what was there. God can multiply what you have. Sometimes it's just a problem with us turning with our intention towards God. Sometimes we have no vision, we have no intention, and no means for getting to a spiritual goal that is both unrealistic and uninspiring anyway. Furthermore, a lot of us perhaps don't even know how to integrate, we might not even know how to integrate our spiritual goals or our spirituality with our busy existing lives. How do I bring God into my work? How do I bring God into my relationships? How do I bring God into what I'm doing? And if that's you, you might feel yourself in this place, that your only source of spiritual nourishment falls in this window on Sunday morning between 9 a.m. and 12. Now, Sunday morning is important. I'm actually going to spend a whole Sunday in the future talking about Sundays because it's important. It's just not meant to be alone. Sunday morning is here to teach and to entrance and to train you for what life between Monday and Saturday could be like if you were connected to the vine, which is Christ. Resolutions sometimes lack the caliber that our souls need to be sustained. What I want to do this morning and this afternoon is to suggest an alternative to last-second Hail Marys like resolutions. I want to suggest that we adopt rhythms. 
And I'm getting that from the book of Daniel. But first, what is a rhythm? Uh, this is on the screen from the dictionary. A rhythm is a regularly reoccurring sequence of actions. Turn to someone next to you and say, you need regularly reoccurring actions. I can tell you're getting a little tired. Let's move around a little bit. Turn to the person on the other side and say, you need rhythms. Yes, yes. <laughs> and here's why, okay? Just, let's just... Let's just interact together right now. Here's why. You cannot coast through your spiritual life and survive. Have you ever been in the water, in the water in Santa Barbara, when it's a little bit warmer than it is right now? Uh, whether you're paddleboarding or kayaking or uh, uh, bodyboarding or surfing, in some places in the water, the current is so strong that if you were just to sit there, you could find yourself drifting 100 feet without even knowing it. You have to actually paddle just to make sure that you stay in the same place, much less to go forward. The spiritual life is so similar to that. There is so much going against you, so much in culture and society that is not compatible with the kingdom of God that you could easily find yourself drifting and you're not even doing anything. You're just standing there. The spiritual life was meant to go forward, to paddle forward. Therefore, we need rhythms. Number one, I'd say we, uh, because of our motivation by guilt, our tendency to just do things because we feel like we're supposed to, we need to be inspired by God. We need to have a vision for how life could be if we were to step into what we're about to unpack today. For you, that might just be starting. If, if your spirituality is merely uh, just religion, if your spirituality right now is merely doing things out of obligation, I don't want you to feel guilty today. I just want you to be honest and come before God and say, God, I want more than just doing rote practices for no reason. I want to experience your presence. I want to feel your joy. I want to look you in the face. I want you to stir in my heart a passion for how life could be if I were connected to you and allow the Holy Spirit to work that in your life. We cannot go forward unless our hearts are entranced by a better life in Christ. But the second thing is, not just inspiration, but rhythms. Regularly reoccurring actions that will reorient us to God. I want us to read that passage one more time. And I'm just going to pull out, uh, you can throw it up on the screen, verse 1 through 6. I'm just going to pull out a couple parts the king commands Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful, yada, 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 so on and so forth, to stand in the king's palace. So what's happening in the book of Daniel? Uh, the, the empire of Babylon is doing their thing. They're ransacking the world. And they're bringing from the areas that they have ransacked people that could serve in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, they're creating exiles. And so here's these young boys that are brought to Babylon, stripped of their identity, stripped of their heritage, the cultural norms that they're used to, stripped from their worship life and their community, brought into Babylon. And among these were Daniel and his buddies, uh, whom we might know as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. I bring this up, this passage, because Daniel's situation is so like some of ours. He's not unlike a lot of us in this room, maybe all of us, in that this isn't a guy that's isolated in some perfect monastery, in some, uh, uh, in some perfect God-centered environment with no problems and no challenges. He doesn't work in the temple. 
He doesn't work in the synagogue. He doesn't have a full-time job at a church. He works in Babylon with the king. He was embedded in a culture where he probably felt a little overwhelmed as a follower of God. Like, how am I going to survive here and stay connected to God? Notice that Daniel, like some of us, doesn't have a lot of external control over his life. Uh, He's a slave of Nebuchadnezzar's. Not a lot you can do to change that. Not a lot you can do to change your schedule. Maybe you feel like that right now. You have an employer, you have bills, you have a place you have to show up, you have kids, you have a litany of things. There's not a lot you can change. And the Bible calls Daniel a, a specific word. It calls him an exile, a word that means that he was far from home. But Daniel, even though being far from home, endeavored to be close to his God. I say this because Peter, the Apostle Peter, in one of his letters would refer to all Christians as exiles too. Not geographical exiles, but spiritual exiles. Paul would say that we are citizens of heaven. We belong to God's kingdom, and yet he has us right here on this earth in places like Santa Barbara, Ojai. I don't know why I brought up Ojai. Santa Barbara and Ojai, okay? And all the other places around that area. We're here. He's not taking us away to bring us to some heavenly place. We're supposed to be here. And so that leaves Christians with this tension. How do I live my life and function well here in Santa Barbara and abroad while remaining tight and connected to my God? That is all of our questions. But some of us are asking that question with busy lives, saying, how do you you even manage that? How do you live well in a world while remaining deeply connected to God. Perhaps some of you might start this journey by asking this question yourself, a heart question. Where do you feel the tension right now? As a follower of Jesus, with your life, however it looks, where do you feel the real tension of following Jesus right now? Where do you feel pressure in your life right now? I want you to think deeply about that, and I want you to just store it right here as we interact with it for a few weeks and start to do that today. Daniel needed heavenly rhythms. That's how he did it. He didn't just coast into Babylon hoping things would be fine, but he had a a regular set of practices that constantly reoriented him towards God. You know what they were? You might be surprised at the simplicity of Daniel's rhythms. The first one was a slight change to his diet. That's weird. Nobody expected that, right? Look at uh, verse 8 through 13. I'll read this whole passage. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave favor to Daniel and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, hey, listen, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and then deal with us according to what you see. Daniel establishes a rhythm 
and tells that, the chief, uh, uh, that steward from the, the chief of the eunuchs, hey, just let us live in these godly rhythms for 10 days and see if it makes a difference. Here's a second rhythm, prayer. I want to fast forward to Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 through 10. Again, I'm going to read this whole passage. It says, it pleased Darius, so chapter 6, there's a new king now. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Over them three, uh, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. So Daniel is now in a seat of power. He's made it big. And the satraps would give him account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then Daniel became distinguished above all the high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. That's awesome. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Uh, what those, those guys end up doing is the only fault they can find with Daniel is he keeps praying. And so they use that against him. They come up to King Darius, who is a bit narcissistic, as kings back then often were, and says, Darius, we have a great idea. Uh, we, you should enact a law in which nobody can pray to anybody else but you. And if they do, you should throw them into a den of lions. We just came up with that uh, for no reason, just you know, asking for a friend. And Darius is like, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it. Everybody pray to me. Well, I want to fast forward to verse 9 and 10 at the bottom of this passage. It says that, therefore, when King, uh, when King Darius signed the document and injunction, Daniel knew the document it had signed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. Here's the verse I want to land on. Look at this. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Do you see that? Daniel had a rhythm. He had a couple rhythms, and they might not make sense to you. You might be hearing this being like, are we going to get a diet plan or something? No, it's not about a diet plan. The point behind this passage is that Daniel knew, if I'm going to be connected to God while remaining present in Babylon, I have to adopt some heavenly rhythms in my life that will reorder my whole being towards God. For Daniel, it might not be the same for you, but for Daniel, that was, I need to eat what I used to eat, and I need to pray at these set moments throughout the day. If I can do those small, manageable rhythms from a heart overflowing from God, I think I'll be okay. Notice that there's no guilt there. It's not uninspiring. Notice uh, that it's not this huge thing, eat chia seeds and pray from 3 a.m. He's just saying, I'm, I'm going to pause three times a day. And he begins to reorder his heart and body towards God, and he thrives. Uh, later in church history, this idea of creating rhythms would uh, come to be known as the rule of life. That might uh, irk you a little bit, hearing that word rule. Uh, you might think of a rule as like a demand, an external command placed on you by somebody else. That's not the original meaning a uh, rule came from the Latin word regula, which implies not a system or a bunch of rules or laws, but a way of regulating your lives so that you can step and stay on the path that's been set before you. It's just a way of structuring and ordering your life so that you can walk on a path that's been given to you. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, God made known to me the path of life. And on that path, 
In his presence, there's fullness of joy. We've been given a path to walk, but sometimes life can be so busy, so overwhelming, so tiring that we lose sight of the track. Uh, We lose sight of the path. A rule is simply us saying, how can I reorder my life in small but inspiring ways so that I stay on the path that God has for me? That's why the rule of life has come to be known throughout church history as like a trellis. You ever seen a trellis? Maybe at Home Depot? A Home Depot? <laughs> Speaking in tongues already. It's about to get wild. A trellis is that little, you know, little fence, that little structure that is there so that when the plant grows, it knows where it's supposed to grow. It's that little bit of structure that directs the growth of the plant. Now, notice the trellis has no power in itself to make the plant grow. That comes from somewhere else. It just directs the growth of the plant. That is so true for every spiritual practice that you and I might adopt. Coming to church isn't going to change you. Giving generously isn't going to change you. Reading your Bible every day, that doesn't have supernatural power to change you. The rule of life doesn't have any power inherent in it to change you. Even rhythms can't change you. Only God can change you by the power of his Holy Spirit. So why would we adopt practices and rhythms? Because we're so distracted. We need structure in our life, even just a little bit, to posture ourselves to receive of the life-giving power of a God who wants to change us. And so we adopt rhythms by looking at major spaces in our life and reordering them around God in small and regular ways. Now, notice I'm not trying to add more to your palate. I'm not saying here's something else to add to your schedule. What we're going to do, what Daniel seems to do, is take what's already there And to say, how can I introduce a heavenly rhythm into what I'm already doing? So we're going to do that. Today and for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at major spaces in our life that we might say, I would love if God was present in this, but I don't know how. We're going to look at things like prayer. And when I say prayer, I mean not just talking out loud to God, but all the ways in which we commune with God. Prayer communion with God. We're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about that starting next week. Uh, We're going to talk about rest because you absolutely cannot experience God unless you experience God-given limits and rhythms in your life. For six weeks, God worked and then he rested. Uh, It is so powerful to our spirituality to know when we're supposed to stop and simply be. I've spoken so many times on rest and limits and margin and the Sabbath that I felt like we just needed a fresh perspective on this, so I'm asking a friend to come and speak on that day, uh, January 27th, from our extended family at Reality San Francisco. Her name's Ruthie Kim, and she is fire. You do not want to miss January 27th. Uh, But she'll be preaching on rest on that day. Do not miss it. Rest entails that we're also working. And if you live in Santa Barbara, you probably are working. Uh, But some of us maybe have no idea how to connect our faith with our work, and we'd love to. I want to talk about how you can do that. We'll talk about relationships, how God is present in our relationships, and how we can be aware of that. We'll speak about emotional health. We'll speak about spiritual community, all of that stuff. 
In other words, we're going to look at some of those major areas of our life that we already spend our time, and we're going to ask God to thrill our hearts in order to see him there. So we're not stepping into our prayer life saying, I guess I should pray more. 3 a.m. We're going to ask God, give us a vision for how prayer might change our lives. Give us a vision for our work as a place of vocation. Give us a vision for relationships as that place where your power is put on display, so on and so forth. We're going to ask God for vision starting today. But we're also going to ask, what are one or two practices or rhythms, practices that you can incorporate into a daily or weekly rhythm that will help you reorder your life around this new vision with God? You might be saying, why would I want to do all of that? Let's read this uh, last passage with Daniel, chapter 1, verse 14 through 21. You could see the effect that it had on him. So the eunuch listened to the boys in this manner and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. That's not the part I wanted to see. But verse 16, so the steward looked away, uh, excuse me, took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none, none was found to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the, other, all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel is thriving in Babylon. God's intention was not to remove him from Babylon, just as his intention isn't to remove you from wherever you are right now. His intention is to teach you from the rhythms of the kingdom how to thrive where you are. Do you know that, Christian? You weren't just meant to survive here. You weren't just meant to stumble along until you get into heaven where things will be great. You were meant to taste the rhythms of God's kingdom here and right now in pieces as you go. You were meant to thrive. Now, notice that thriving does not mean that you're never going to suffer or that you're never going to face challenges. The Bible promises that, but it also promises that in the middle of the lion's den, you might be calm like Daniel because your heart is gripped by something else. The Bible promises that in the midst of the fires, in the midst of the lion's dens of life, in the midst of the trials, something that transcends your circumstances can have your heart. Look at Daniel. This guy is living in regular communion with God at all times, not just when he's at church or synagogue or temple. Daniel is not just, he's not just surviving, he's prospering in a hostile environment, so much so that he outlasts King Nebuchadnezzar. He even outlasts Darius. He outlasts these earthly kings. And this is God's vision for your life. You know how I know that? Because in Luke chapter 10, a young person would come up to Jesus and say, hey, what's the most important commandment in all the scriptures? 
What's the, most, what's the best thing I can do? What is my best life? And Jesus replied, the best thing that you could do is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is the second one. If I could paraphrase that, Jesus is saying the best way to live is to love God with every area of your life. Everything about you. If you can tap into that, you will know what a life well-lived is all about. You might be asking, how do you start to live that way? Well, I think we can say together that it's certainly not by half-hearted Hail Mary resolutions at the end of the year. Nor is it by living from Sunday to Sunday. Or by, re- uh, or by waiting until our life is falling apart before we decide to get spiritual. It's by starting today. It's by opening up our hearts to the things of God and saying, I, I want to reorder my life right now around God's presence. And the Bible teaches, here's the beauty of the gospel. The Bible teaches that in Christ, the kingdom of God is close to you already. Question some of us have to just start asking today is do we want it? And how badly? And what will we do to change our lives in order to experience it? I'm going to ask Robert and the rest of the worship band to come out this morning as we sing. I'm going to come out in a few minutes and lead us through a practice. But before we do that, we're going to sing a song together. And as we do it, here's, here's what I want to do. I think we got, we got a lot in store together as a church for the next seven weeks that I'm excited about. But right now, we can start doing some of that work right now by getting to the depth of our heart's desires, peering through the guilt, the obligation, some of those external uh, duty-filled obligations and feelings that we hoist upon ourselves, that feeling of religiosity, in order to examine why do we want these things? Maybe you can do that for the next few minutes. Examine your New Year's resolutions. Examine the things in your life that you want to change and ask yourself before God, what's at the heart of that need for change? Look at the areas of life. Maybe there's areas in your life that you feel like are lacking And maybe you feel ashamed of that. Don't feel ashamed. Don't feel guilty over that. God loves you. And he wants to bring change and transformation to your life more than you even want it for yourself. And how often does our shame and our guilt keep us from interacting with God in those things? No longer hide in the shadow of your shame and guilt. Bring it out into the open and say, God, here is where I feel like my life is lacking. Here's where I feel like my relationships are lacking. Here's where I feel like my prayer life is lacking. Here's where my soul is tired. Here's where I'm spent, where I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do about it, but God, come into the depths of my heart and teach me what is it that I truly desire. You might experience something powerful in that moment. God reaching deep down inside of you and saying, you desire me. Whatever that is, bring that before the Lord. And just ask Him. Bring your unmet expectations, your failures, or your resolutions before God and ask Him, what are you kindling deep down inside me? And then just begin to listen. This God who promises to be here with us is already desiring to interact with you.
Heavenly Father, may it be according to your word. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name.